morning, church. Last week was rough. That passage was hard. This passage, a little bit more affirming, a little bit more excitable. I'm a little bit more excited to teach. I don't, I feel fine, at least other than my shoulder, and the boiler is working. Praise the Lord. So, wow. Uh, we are back in our study known as Done as we're going through the first John. And today we tackle what I consider a bit more of a positive subject than last week. Today we look at how faith in the proper thing, let's just call it the gospel, is greater than our feelings, which for the average believer might not seem like a big deal, but church, this is a huge deal. And while belief in Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness, the byproduct of that faith is assurance in whose we are. We'll begin in verse 19, but then we're going to do a little bit of backtracking. Verse 19. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Now, there are disagreements to what John is pointing out. The way it is written and implied based on this NIV translation is that what he says next is what, uh, is what makes us know we belong in the truth. But rather, I think this points back to what we studied last week. So let me read that. Verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If you were with us last week, you heard what at least was a convicting message to me. And I acknowledge that as I read this passage, as I studied this passage, that I perhaps had studied or uh, believed it incorrectly in the past. But wrestling with this text all week showed me perhaps how some of my love for other brothers and sisters in the faith was insincere and really not love at all. But the big takeaway for me from last week, and the most important thing that last week's passage did, at least for me, was to make me believe the gospel even more. And believing the gospel, the finished work of Christ as our salvation, as our righteousness, is what I believe, John, as we're studying now, is hitting on once again to these believers in Ephesus. And we will soon see as believers in Santa Clara County what a big deal belief is, what a big deal faith really is. Because of our faith, we have what is known as blessed assurance. And so John's saying that we should not love insincerely, but rather sincerely in truth and in action, then says, so I'm going to read 18 again, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Again, a sincere love that isn't just words, church but in actions, is a reminder of the confidence that we have that we belong to the truth. And this isn't justifying language, aka also known as, if you do this, then you will be saved, but rather because you are saved. God does this through you. And really what he's going to point to is us resting in the salvation that he has given us in Jesus as a believer. So today, resting in our salvation for the person who has received God's grace through faith in Christ, we should look at what John says today and be joyful. Because we will read, we are so valued in the kingdom of God that our gift of salvation is secure. And our assurance in Christ is what we ought to and always get to look at. 
our salvation, um, uh, our inclusion in Christ, our justification is something that God freely gives. How? Through the person and work of Jesus. And our belief in this and our trust in this is really what John is trying to remind and teach and cement in the hearts and minds of the Ephesians. In the church today, that's us, in the church today, for the believer, we tend to either forget or not really believe that our identity in Christ is secure. It does not change with the seasons, nor is it dictated by emotions or feelings. Our identity and security is what we can rely on because it should be wrapped up in Christ and his finished work, and he is who we can rely on, or as we've said many weeks in a row, who we can abide in. And when we believe this, we can look to this, no matter what happens and changes around us. So as John has taught us about how we should love other brothers and sisters in action, in deeds, and in truth, we then can know we can believe, we can be sure that we belong to the truth and see how Jesus, what he says about the truth in John 8, 31 through 32. John writing this gospel as well says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? You'll be set free from thinking that you have to earn. You'll be set free from thinking that you have to pay back God for the gifts that he's given you, or that it's based on your effort or your goodness. And believers today, I want you to know, hear me, I want you to know that you are loved. You are cherished. You are important to God in ways you have never thought about or fathomed and that your blessed assurance, who is Jesus Christ, your righteousness, your salvation, your rest from attempting to be religious or perfect because Jesus was perfect on your behalf. So now John points out the reality that every believer is going to have to deal with at some point or another, as Ruth read, verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Do we believe this? Do we really believe? Like, think about your week when stuff hit the fan. I said stuff. I don't know if you know this about yourself. I don't know if you know this about society, but we're really into how we feel. Like really into basing what we do on what our heart desires. It feels, pun intended, like all of society and culture are wrapped up in their feelings. How someone feels has become greater than anything that is actually true. And it becomes the vehicle for how people think truth is judged. We say things like, well, that is your truth because of how someone feels. And yet what John is pointing out, don't get mad at me because I'm challenging this. Get mad at John because John says this before you were even a theory to your parents. John is pointing out that even if our heart condemns us, even if we feel something or feel like we don't belong to Christ, it is not your heart that determines this. It is faith in God who has called you to himself called you out of darkness, called you into his marvelous light. He has called you as a son or daughter of the God most high, if you feel like it or not, if you've believed unto Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says to the church, 
But you, Christian, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if you feel this way or not, what John is pointing out is that God is greater than your heart. I've had conversation after conversation with people who had believed, but they didn't feel something. Some assumption that they'd feel entirely different if they believed, and so this feeling, or lack thereof of some feeling, made them doubt that their faith was genuine. And while I think it's okay to doubt, hear me, it's okay to doubt. Trusting God at his word includes trusting that what he says is more important than how we feel. And boy, is that not popular. But as we say often, trusting God at his word means that he overrules you. And his word, while sometimes failed, for those who do not believe him, is saying that he is greater and even smarter than your heart. Now, I hope you receive that. I hope that frees you from guilt and shame that you may have because of some doubt. I hope that brings you joy rather than anger. Because if you can find joy in this, you probably know God and his love for you. But if it angers you, if you think internally, you're not the boss of me, well, then maybe he isn't. You might know all the right Christian sayings. You may look pious and righteous on the outside, but your heart of stone, which is hardened by not trusting God at his word repeatedly. Let me say that again. Hardness of heart happens by not trusting God at his word repeatedly has kind of outed you. Not to other people. We can't see your heart. We don't know exactly what's internally in you. But it's outed you to yourself. Because the one who knows God, loves God, and, is, and loves his reign over our salvation and even over our hearts. Is this black and white? <laughs> no, not at all. I tend to, here's a biblical term, kick against the goats. I don't like it when God shows me where I am not allowing him to overrule me, but he is so patient and gracious with me to continue to show me. And I, like you, need to be careful. The things we are unwilling to hand over time and time again, again, that creates hardness of heart. And hardness of heart, church, I haven't talked about this in quite a while, is a really, really big deal. And for some, it becomes the thing that excludes us from receiving grace because our heart, is too, our heart is too hard to what God says because he continues to tell us something. We continue to stiff arm him. But God in his good and pleasing will will take us as we are. No cleaning ourselves up. No entrance fee. He loves us so much that he takes us as we are, but he also loves us so much that he won't let us stay the same. So look at how God changes us from the inside out, spoken through the prophet Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Huh. See, God equips you with his spirit. He equips you with a new heart and then says, 
you will follow his commands and be his people. But just to be clear, he does this. He does this in you before you do anything yourself. God is taking credit for your change. And we should give him credit for our change. And when you come to Christ, that is not evidenced by your trying harder to be good. Let the Mormons do that. It is the Spirit of God giving you the ability to abide, to rely, to not focus on yourself, to focus on Christ. So look at two other authors in the Scriptures who say a very similar thing, writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. Andrew, how are you feeling about endurance after your 42-mile run yesterday? Yeah. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I cannot wait to teach Hebrews. But then Paul writes in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Hallelujah. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This was the note I erased, and Mike helped me find. We as a people tend to look at ourselves. We look at what we think, what we have experienced, what we feel and that then becomes gospel to us. That becomes truth. That becomes how we view the world. And what John is proposing, and what I am encouraging each believer who has believed unto the Lord Jesus to do, is not to look to yourself. Look to Christ. Don't focus on you. Focus on Jesus. Your feelings perhaps are a symptom of something, and sometimes they're true, and sometimes they're not, but the word is always true. Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if this is true, this is why God decides to give us a new heart and a new spirit and a new nature. And it's why he makes us a new creation. Because we are unable and unwilling to look at Christ without the spirit of God giving us the affection and want to do so. Our hearts will condemn us but God is greater than our hearts. Florence Chadwick, I'm sure you all know who this is. She was known for being the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. On the 4th of July, 1951, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island, my happy place, to the California coast. The challenge was not so much the distance, but the bone-chilling waters of the Pacific Ocean. To complicate matters, a dense fog laid over the entire area, making it impossible for her to see land. After about 15 hours in the water, within a half a mile of her goal, Chadwick gave up. Later, she told a reporter, look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I ha could have seen land, I might have made it. Not long afterward, she attempted to do this again. <laughs> 
Once more, a misty veil obscured the coastline, and she couldn't see the shore, but this time she made it. Why? Because she kept reminding herself that land was there. With that confidence, she bravely swam on and achieved her goal. In fact, she broke the men's record by two hours at the time. John is encouraging the believers that when doubt seeps in or guilt wants to overtake you, the cure is not to make penance, but it is to look to Jesus, to believe Jesus, not to believe in him again for the first time or believe any harder, but continue your belief, your faith, your trust that Jesus is who he says that he is. And if we believe that, we are who he says we are, which is children of God. Hallelujah. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John is doing so much contrast, light and dark, death and light, all of this talks about our hearts when they do condemn us and when they don't condemn us. So John points out that when our hearts do condemn us, we look to Jesus. Spoiler, when our hearts don't condemn us, we look to Jesus. And he now compares that with when our hearts do not condemn us, we are having confidence in God. And this idea that someone's heart does not condemn them is not because they are cocky or that they do not think they sin or do unrighteous things. But rather, the most important point that John is making over and over and over again, we could have called this series redundancy, that the person and work of Christ, the person who believes this, who does not have their heart condemn them, is because they are confident in the finished work of Christ as their own righteousness. While this isn't true for all of us, some of us do not have a new heart. I don't, I don't know who we are. I don't know anyone's heart. I can't see your heart. I can see my own heart, kind of. But some of us don't have a new heart because we haven't believed in Jesus. More on that in a moment. But some, their hearts condemn them or don't condemn them because they are closed off to God's prompting and they are hardened to the truth of his son. But what John is implying is the one who puts their trust and faith in Jesus as their right standing before God. They may not have their heart condemn them, not because they are perfect, but because they believe in the one who is and they're focused on him. Leslie Duncan told about a dog he had when he was a boy. His father would occasionally test the dog's obedience. I think we all do this. He would place a tempting piece of meat on the floor and give the command, no, to the dog. The dog, who must have had a strong urge to go for that meat, was placed in the most difficult of situations, to obey or disobey his master's command. Duncan said the dog never looked at the meat. He seemed to feel that if he did, the temptation to disobey would be too great, so he looked steadily at the father's face. Duncan then made the spiritual application. There is a lesson for us all. Always look to the master's face. It's not that God is tempting us. The world is. The evil one is. But we too have an out. Not that God will never allow us to deal with what we can't handle. I've heard you say this. Oh, God will never give me anything you can't handle. Oh, yes, he will. Trust me, it happens a lot. But what does the text actually say? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. That's the point. 
God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You're not the point. He is. The circumstances and the point. He is. Don't read that as he won't put you in situations you can't handle. He will. But what God is saying is that there is no temptation too great for God. There is no temptation too great for God that he can't help you out of it. So look to him. Now, looking to him is synonymous with confidence in him. So verse 21 again. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And so your confidence in him and receiving what you ask go hand in hand, not because you've cracked the code of getting what you want. Technically, John doesn't speak into the motivation of what we ask for. Rather, he points out that our confidence and our connection to Christ means that we can ask what God will and does provide. Think of it this way. God, not a genie in a bottle, dictated by you and your wishes. Rather, he is your heavenly father who knows everything. Remember, he's smarter than our hearts, including what you need to grow and be more like Christ. So through confidence in Jesus's work and connection to God through his spirit residing in you, what you ask for, is in line with what God's will is revealed in his word. John says, because we keep his commands and does what pleases him, which means more about our spirit-led connection than a transactional relationship in which you do things in order to get things. And what is it that he commanded us believers? Here we go, verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. I don't know if there's a more simple explanation of what our faith is all about than this verse. To believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. To believe in his name is to believe Jesus and all that is revealed about himself in Scripture. And what is in the name of Jesus? (laughs) Well, a lot. Here's a list in some kind of alphabetical order, but not limited to. Here we go. Jesus is the Almighty One, the Alpha and Omega, the Advocate, the Author and Perfecter of our faith, the Authority, the Bread of Life, the Beloved Son of God, the Bridegroom, the Chief Cornerstone, the Deliverer, the Faithful and True, the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the Head of the Church, the Holy Servant, the Great I Am, the Emmanuel, Indescribable Gift, the Judge, the King of Kings, Lamb of God, Light of the world, lion, tribe of Judah, the mediator, the Messiah, the mighty one, our hope, the prince of peace, a prophet, redeemer, risen Lord, rock, sacrifice for our sins, savior, son of man, son of God, supreme creator, the resurrection, the door, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine, the victorious one, the wonderful counselor, and the mighty God. Do we believe this about Jesus? That's a small sample size of the names of Jesus out of more than 250 included in Scripture. So do you believe this about Jesus? Do you believe he is all of these things? Do you believe he is who he says he is as he reveals himself in Scripture? He is the Lord, or is he misleading you? Because to believe these things is to believe God at his word, and Jesus being all that I just listed off is what it means to believe in his name. 
It's not that we believe that he existed or even exists, but that what is said about him in Scripture is actually true from his perfect life lived to his teachings, to his sacrificial death, to his victorious resurrection from the dead, to his exaltation to the right hand of the Father until he comes back to judge the living and the dead. Do we believe this? So what John is pointing out is what you believe about Jesus. Hear me, hear me, hear me. If you're playing on your phone, hear me. What John is pointing out is that what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing in all of this life. Not just because of what happens when you die. That's a scare tactic. But rather what John is saying is that everything you do in this life and the next flows out of what you do with Jesus Christ. The Bible? Pretty long. Anyone have a tough time trying to read through it? Okay, eight hands and liars. This is hard. It's a long book, which all points to our need and our ability to know God. How? Through believing in his son. So let me break down what I believe John is implying. If you need a takeaway, here's a good one. Obey God's command of believing in Jesus. And through that belief, we then love one another in action and in truth. Let me say that again. Obey God's command of believing in Jesus. And through that belief, we then love one another in action and in truth. Our righteousness is belief in Christ. Our righteous work is loving one another, not because we have to, but because we can through Christ. Verse 24, the one who keeps God's commands, believe in the name of the Son and love one another, lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So John says that those who keep God's commands, What are God's commands? To believe in the Son and to love one another. To believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love other believers. To love like God. To love in truth. To love in truth other believers. That is who keeps God's commands, and that is who is indwelled by God, for God, and in God. So John, once again, points to our relationship with Christ, which is, excuse me, is this mutual indwelling Jesus uses this term while speaking to the Father in John 14 through 17 in in John's gospel. And now again here in 1 John, he's pointing to the fact that Christ resides in us. And we are in turn hidden with Christ and given his spirit as confirmation to also give us confidence in our sonship, to give us confidence in our adoption, to give us confidence in our justification and our connection to God. And how do we know this? By the Spirit, capital S, that he gave us. Now, I know the Spirit of God, which God gave us, the third person of the Trinity, a little mysterious. Let's be real. And it's even something that people tend to get heated about and disagree among the church. But what the Holy Spirit says about himself, through the Word of God, which he authored using messed up people, to write a perfect word originally. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, resides in those who by his prompting have received the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus through faith in Jesus, through belief in Jesus. So to be in Christ, you are indwelled by the Spirit. 
It's another gift that goes along with receiving grace in the first place. And when you are in Christ, Christ is in you. You love one another, and belief and love, they're not the same verb, but they're related, and it is out of who we believe in and what we believe about him, his name, that we are able to love one another. I think the Holy Spirit speaking through John is showing the emphasis that belief without love is not real belief, and love without belief in Jesus is not real love. They go together. And you cannot opt out of one or the other and be indwelled with the Spirit of God. And we know this, John says, by the Spirit that God gave us. It's as if God, stay with me, it's as if God has replaced our feelings as our leading compass to the actual Spirit of God who confirms and convicts through God's Word and leads us towards obedience, truth, and love. In two weeks, we're going to pick back up in this series and see where John heads explaining that not every spirit is God's spirit and that we should test every spirit. And the spirit of God is the one who confirms who Jesus says that he is. Spoiler. But for us today, I'd like us to thank God for his gift of his very spirit residing in us confirming the truth about Jesus, confirming the assurance we have in, the, in faith in the gospel. So worship team, why don't you guys come on up? And I'm going to conclude our time, or my sermon, with this story from a theologian I appreciate named James Packer. He told this story. He said, I remember walking to church one winter evening to preach on the words, he will glorify me, found in John 16, 14. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned the corner headed towards the church and realizing that this was the exact illustration my message needed. See, when floodlights are well done, the floodlights are placed so that you do not see them. In fact, you are not supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building in which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you can see it properly. This perfectly illustrated the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining upon the Savior. Or think of it this way. It's as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but it's always look at him. See his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The Spirit, we might say, is the matchmaker the celestial marriage broker whose role it is to bring us and Christ together and ensure that we stay together. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I come to your word and I'm, uh, I just feel unqualified each week when I begin the message or the week prior to come up here and share with others the truth 
of what belief in you really means. To try to explain in more broken English, if you will, what the authors were implying through the work of your spirit. And yet, God, you are a great God who can use messed up people. And you can draw us to yourself and you can confirm in our hearts through the work of your spirit inside of us, residing in us if we have believed unto the Lord Jesus, that our assurance, our confidence, is because of what Jesus has done, not what we do. Lord, thank you that by believing in you, it's not about what we do, but whose we are. Thank you that this blessed assurance, this salvation, this justification is offered to us in a way that I don't think the world grasps without your spirit making it clear. So God, as we sing, would we sing with a heart that wants to just thank you for what you've done and what you continue to do in the hearts of believers. And may you draw more people to yourself because this grace it's too good for people not to know. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.